Acts chapter 2, in case you're unaware, records one of the most ground-shifting events in all of human history, the birth of the church. The chapter itself opens on the day of Pentecost with the Holy Spirit being poured out on 120 believers, waiting for the promise of the Holy Spirit, just like Jesus had said, in response to this outpouring and the manifestations that occur. A crowd gathers to see in Jerusalem what's going on. Peter, who had been a coward, stands up and boldly preaches the gospel of Jesus Christ. Again, the Spirit moves. And we're told that 3,000 souls were added to their ranks. And one day, the Christian church was born, and the world since has never been the same. Luke, who is the author of the book of Acts, closes this incredible chapter in verse 47 by telling you and I, the reader, that the explosive growth that we see occurred in this first church directly as, quote, the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. And it's to this point that I want to take our time this morning and discuss something that's relevant. I want to discuss both the how and the why a church should grow. I have found that one of the many unintended consequences consequences of the rise of the American megachurch is that numbers, numbers, attendance, the audience size, has become seen as the most effective and largely only way to evaluate a ministry's effectiveness. <laughs> Every time I have dinner with my 85-year-old grandfather, the first thing he always asks me, it's not how you're doing, how the kid's doing, How's the golf game? First thing he asks is always, how many people you have come into Calvary 316? As if that was the singular metric that we could use to judge the work that God was doing in our church. And while everything within me cringes at the very essence of the question itself, the truth, if we're to be fair this morning, is that numbers do provide a tangible way to gauge success. Since this is the case, over the last 30 years, church growth has become our obsession with the development of creative ideas and solutions and programs aimed at increasing attendance, our chief pursuit. Now, in fairness, numbers are a tricky way of, at evaluating effectiveness. On one end, it's, it's true that a growing church is an indicator of a healthy church. I mentioned it last Sunday. The adage is true. Healthy sheep reproduce. Don't get me wrong. There is absolutely nothing wrong with a desire to see the church grow. It's especially nice when the church experiencing growth is the one you've chosen to be a part of. And yet, the problem with our obsession over numbers is that we fail to consider or to ask one key question. Does church growth guarantee church health? You know, we've seen, we've seen this illustrated with the abuse of steroids 
and HGH, human growth hormone, in Major League Baseball. See, what this illustrates is that growth, physical growth in and of itself, in some instances isn't a good thing. The truth is that growth, abnormal growth, steroids, can be detrimental to a person's health. I mean, we've had ball players that were hitting home runs in the mid-90s dropping over in their mid-50s today because of the drugs that they took. Growth, it's not always healthy, physically, personally, but the same is true with the church. Think of the complexity of relying on numbers as the sole metric of judging a church this way. Since a healthy church will always be a growing church, we can use numbers as a way to measure success. However, since a growing church is not automatically guaranteed to be a healthy church, numerical growth can be actually misleading. You see the problem here? Numbers can be evidence of growth, healthy, but numbers can also be evidence that the growth isn't healthy. Numbers alone isn't the right way to gauge things. And it's because this is the case that the how and the why behind a church's growth, numerical growth, is the only way that you can really evaluate if that church is healthy. The only way that you can evaluate if the health of the church is tied to that ministry's true effectiveness. Numbers alone are not enough. First, when determining health, it's wise we first consider how the church is growing. In regards to this church in the book of Acts, this first church, we're told in the verse that we read that the Lord added to the church. Notice that? The Lord added. This means... Numerical growth was seen as an indicator of church health for one reason. Luke directly attributes it as being a work of Jesus and not a work of the church itself. This church grew as a direct byproduct of a work that Jesus was doing, a work where Jesus was adding. It was a work of God and not a work of man. It's interesting that in Acts 2, verse 43, we're told that fear came upon every soul. And here's why. Because many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Did you notice that? People recognized the power of this church did not reside in a program, a charismatic personality, or a growth strategy, but was completely and utterly supernatural. Look back. The work was happening, how? Through the apostles. They were just a vessel. Understand, the church described in Acts 2 wasn't experiencing explosive growth because of a slick marketing campaign or some brilliant advertisement devised by a creative. Numerical growth instead could only be attrib attributed to the activities of one man. Not Peter or John, but Jesus. And it's to this point I need to ask, do you, friend, want to be a part of a work of man's ingenuity or a work produced through God's direct supernatural involvement? You see, I'm of the opinion that if you can't directly cite the growth of your church to Jesus, then why be involved at all? It's a work of man. 
Such a perspective drives the decisions that we make here at this church, both the elders and I. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that there aren't instances, scenarios, where a church can't advertise or send out mailers or lease billboards. There's nothing wrong with looking for creative ways to spread the word. But this should occur in moderation and with specific intention. Do you really want to be able to attribute the growth of your church to a billboard? You know, friend, our church was really struggling. We took every dime we had and we sunk it into those billboards and man, the place just blew up. Not literally. I mean, we had people coming everywhere. That billboard, woo, it did the trick. I don't want to be a part of that. To say that it was a billboard that grew the church as opposed to something supernatural. Like it's kind of with intention that we're off the beaten path in an industrial park with very little signage. For people to find Calvary 316, it has to be Jesus. Seriously, think about how you got here. How did you get here? You saw our billboard? No. You might have Googled us, but we came up on like the 50th page, which means you were scrolling for a long time trying to find a church. See, there's something about the Lord doing it and trusting the Lord to do it. Let me ask you this. If you're like, well, Zach, I think there should be billboards. Okay, cool. How much of your tithe do you want to go to billboards? As opposed to like practical ministry. Because it comes from somewhere, right? For giggles, I was sitting in the line at the Taco Bell up here off 316. It was a line. They were slow. I was looking up at a billboard. It was a scrolling one. And there was a church that was advertising on it, which is fine. But one of the slots was blank. It had a phone number. And I, I thought, I'm kind of curious. So as I'm sitting there, I called the phone number. I said, hey, I'm interested in renting your billboard. What would it run me? $14,000 a year for one billboard on 316 is what it would run me. That's a lot of money to rent space on a billboard. This church was growing. Why? Charismatic personality, awesome work. It was Jesus. Jesus was adding. And everyone could step back and say, wow, we're a part of something that transcends us. That's way beyond us. This is something Jesus is doing through us. And we're just hands and feet. We're just a mouthpiece. Aside from the how the church is growing, which is important when determining health. We should also consider why a church is growing. The how is important. It's Jesus or nothing. But we should also consider the why. Now, from my perspective, one of the biggest issues I have with the entire idea that numerical growth should be the primary metric for judging a church's success is the brutal reality that there are many churches with suspect methodology, theology, or leadership that grow to reach enormous numbers. Like if we just factor numbers, then you know who the most successful, biblically-based, Jesus-filled pastor in America is? Joel Osteen. 
See, Lakewood boasts about 43,000 members. I think that number is going to probably drop after his shenanigans this past week. North Point, Andy Stanley, 30,000. World Changers, Creflo Dollars, 15. Until Rob Bell was fired from his church, Mars Hill, over his book, Love Wins, this church in Michigan had 10,000 members with a heretic serving as their pastor. See, that's a problem, right? Big numbers, we want to say big success. Even to his death, Eddie Long drew a crowd. Here's my point. When trying to wade through the complexities of evaluating church by the numbers, we would be wise to consider this important question. With whom are the membership roles increasing? Understand, who attends and why is just as important in determining the health of a church as how many are showing up. I'm convinced that there are churches experiencing growth because they've produced an environment that appeals to what I call the experienced junkies. Now, for the sake of illustration, we, I'll refer to these churches that cater to the experienced junkies as the low-rise church with the leadership behind them as dealers. Roll with me. An experienced junkie is a person who craves, above all else, the chemical high caused by a spiritual experience. As with all junkies, these people seek out a good dealer who can provide whatever stimulant is required to make them feel good. If the dealer cooks up just the right fix, as with any addict, the junkie keeps coming back for more. Keep in mind, these low-rise churches are designed by creative dealers to be a location whereby experienced junkies come to get their next spiritual hit. Through the emotional stirring of music, the stimulating awe produced by cutting-edge technology, the inspiration yielded by spiritual antidotes, it's often that these low-rise churches will throw in a social cause to make the junkie feel like they're making a difference. The low-rise church is fundamentally designed to leave the junkie with a sense of spiritual euphoria. That's the intention. should also be pointed out as a matter of wise business practice that you'll never find a dealer doubling as a, as a moralist. As a matter of principle, dealers never feel a sense of obligation to notify the junkie that their behavior indicates that there might be a serious problem one that might prove detrimental to their long-term health and well-being. A dealer's whole job is just keep the fixes coming. This is why the low-rise church service aims at doing nothing more than fostering a high while avoiding downers. As such, you'll never hear one of these dealers addressing core problems like sin or rebellion, judgment, conviction, consequences. You see, the low-rise church experiences growth because they feed the need of feeling spiritual without ever really addressing the reality of being spiritual. With this in mind, these experienced junkies are always looking to attend the church that is trending, most exciting. They're always looking for the newest product. Though the low-rise church experiences growth, 
isn't it true, though, that a church model with dealers facilitating junkies is hardly a remedy for genuine and lasting health? You see, at some point, a junkie who comes to church only for the high, at some point, whatever you're giving them to satisfy, it starts to normalize. This means that a low-rise church, it has to always find new ways to stimulate, to give a new high, and what happens next is messy. See, an unsatisfied junkie will either demand a new experience, force the dealer to come up with something fresh, or he'll leave to find a new dealer. Maybe one who pastors the high-rise church. Or, if the church is smart, if they wise up, they repent and put everyone through a detox. I'm also convinced that there are churches experiencing incredible growth because they've produced an environment that appeals to what we'll call the runaway. Once again, for the sake of illustration, we'll refer to these churches as the brothel church and the leadership running them as misters. In most instances, a brothel only exists as a matter of last resort. The mister in charge has no interest in the long-term health or prognosis of those who come to him. Rather, he exists to facilitate a mutually beneficial temporary solution. It's interesting, but the brothel church is successful because they create a perfect environment for people to escape from accountability, escape from authority. Because this is the case, the brothel church appeals to malcontents who find it easier to run away from their problems then address them head on and in a biblical way. Runaways tend to be people who seek to be accepted as they are rather than being challenged to become something better. Since the brothel will accept anyone without preconditions and will allow that person to do whatever they want as long as their service proves to be equally beneficial to the mister, by design, the brothel church is ideal for the no one has the right to tell me what to do crowd. Though the brothel church experiences growth. You see it. A church that models misters enabling runaways is hardly a remedy for health. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to realize that a church filled with people running away from their issues is hardly a remedy for success. Tragically, the brothel church ends up being nothing more than a cesspool of hurting, damaged people who serve the needs of the mister without really ever receiving care themselves. Yes, the brothel church serves the need. It gives a runaway a place to go. But the best place for the runaway is sometimes to go home, to quit running from the place that they left. Finally, I'm, I'm convinced that there are churches experiencing explosive growth because they've produced an environment that appeals to everyone. It's the goal. Let's refer to these as the circus church and the leadership behind them as ringmasters. You know, at the opening of a circus, the ringmaster, he enters the arena and what does he declare? Come one, come all. Like the ringmaster's job is to ensure everyone attending feels welcome and is comfortable. Sadly, some of the largest churches share this philosophy. In order to appeal to a wider array of the population, the circus church 
focuses its attention on everyone who comes leaving the event having nothing more than a non-threatening, entertaining, positive experience. Though the ringmaster of the circus church might teach from the Bible, oh, they'll never teach the Bible. As a matter of practicality, the ringmaster will refrain from addressing doctrinal issues and the fear of becoming divisive or accused of intolerance. He'll intentionally minimize the moral stances of Scripture out of fear of offending the audience, emphasizing instead universal antidotes like love and peace, personal improvement. You can get behind that. In the circus church, the two-dimensional perspective of absolute truth is replaced with a Unitarian kaleidoscope of being non-judgmental, making the circus church the perfect location for the Jesus loves me just the way that I am crowd. He does, but he doesn't want to leave you the way that you are. This is why the circus church refrains from taking any type of foundational moral stands in the hopes of creating an umbrella large enough for everyone to congregate comfortably. Though the circus church experience is probably the largest growth of all. A church model that has a ringmaster attempting to appeal to everyone is hardly a remedy for health. Understand it, this Unitarian message of the ringmaster it attracts an interesting mixture of people. The circus church will attract children who would rather fill their mouths with cotton candy than ever grow up. They appeal to Peter Pan. They also appeal to unbelievers who desire a religious experience without religious conviction. Though the circus church will always reject the initial notion that they attract a spiritually immature, I've actually heard these churches, as I mentioned last Sunday, boast about how many unbelievers are attracted to the service on Sunday, as if that should be something to boast about. For the ringmaster, it's a badge of honor that non-Christians feel comfortable within the walls of their circus church. You see, while the low-rise church, the brothel church, and the circus church draw a crowd, and I didn't name names. I could give you examples of all of them. Though they draw a crowd, big crowds, the why they draw a crowd indicates that these churches are far from healthy. It's a how and a why dynamic. And yet, what we find in Acts stands in direct contrast, doesn't it? Not only was this church growing numerically, but we know the growth that was happening was evidence of health. The how and the why aligned. Look back. Luke is crystal clear that the Lord added to the church the how, those who were being saved, the why. You see, the church in Acts was not a low-rise where junkies came for a spiritual high, or a brothel where people could run away from their issues. Nor was this church a circus tent open for everyone to come and feel welcome and comfortable. No, instead, the church in Acts, here in Acts 2, was a place where those who were being saved 
could come and grow in their relationship with Jesus. That's why Jesus was adding those who were being saved outside of the church to the church so that they could develop. And how did this church accomplish this heavy aim? Look at verse 42. We're told they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and the breaking of bread and in prayers. Notice Luke says they continued steadfastly in these four things. The apostles' doctrine, fellowship, the breaking of bread, and prayer. Keep in mind this word steadfastly. In the Greek, it it literally means to be completely devoted to. It's not that you dip your toe in these things. It's that these are your foundation. Nothing will take you away from them. Come hell or high water, your nubby fingers will hold fast as long as you possibly can. I mean, to be immersed in. With the time that we have remaining, because we've addressed the how and the why being important, But for us to grow, for Jesus to do it, we need to look at why he was doing it here so we can replicate it, right? Seems logical. There's four reasons why Jesus chose to add numerical growth to this church. And four reasons why he'll do the same here. First, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. In the Greek, this phrase, apostles' doctrine, is apostolos diodache, which means that they continued steadfastly in, in what was taught to them by the apostles. And historically, we know that the apostles taught only two things. One, they taught the people who Jesus was and what he had done for them. How do we know that, Zach? <laughs> well, we know that's the case Because literally every single sermon you will find in the book of Acts has at its core Jesus. Every sermon was Christ-centric. Who Jesus was, what he did on the cross, that he rose the third day. This was the essence of the message of the first church. Jesus and Jesus alone. It's also why we have the four Gospels. But this wasn't the only thing that the apostles taught. In addition to communicating things about Christ, they taught the people the very things Jesus had taught them from the Old Testament scriptures. Like in essence, the apostles taught the Bible. It's important to point out that the New Testament doesn't really give us anything new. That might sound a little like a head scratcher, but it's true. Like we're told that Jesus came to fulfill the law, and the prophets, meaning that every single concept discussed or expounded upon from Romans to Revelation finds its origin in the Jewish scriptures and its fulfillment in Jesus. You see, since the person and the mission of Jesus is the key to understanding the Old Testament, the apostles, they had a benefit. They were able to look back at the Old Testament scriptures with the benefit of the cipher, seeing Jesus. We finished up a series in Genesis. Jesus is all over the book, right? You can go back and look at the formations of the tabernacle and the temple. Passages of scripture that are mind-numbingly boring. And guess what? 
you will find Jesus all over it. On every page. So they taught the Old Testament with the cipher of Jesus as Jesus had instructed them. You know, it's not an accident that the apostles' doctrine is listed first. There are other things that were important for a healthy church, for this church, but none was more important than the teaching of God's Word. Because we're told in Hebrews 4.12 that it's the Word of God, the Word that is living and powerful, that it's the Word, that book in your hand that is sharper than a two-edged sword, meaning that it has the ability to pierce even to the division within you of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, of your mind, body, soul, and spirit. And that it's the Word, that book, living, that is then able to discern the very thoughts and intents of man, of your heart. And it's because that's a reality. Keep in mind that the teaching of God's Word not the teaching from, but the teaching of God's Word. You will not find any historical reference of an awakening or a revival that didn't have at the core a return to the teaching of God's Word. Doesn't, doesn't exist. The church longs today for an awakening, a spiritual revival. We need it. Our culture, our country needs it desperately. It won't happen in any of the other types of churches I mentioned. You can make the case it's Laodicea. What the church needs is Philadelphia, a church that's faithful to teach God's word. That's the only way there'll be another revival. The only way. The spirit moving through his word. They taught the whole counsel of God. So we see here, this healthy church the Lord was adding to, those who are being saved, why? Because they taught the word. Jesus knew that the church was a place where people who were being saved could come and be taught. Secondly, we're told that they, can, they, they, they continued steadfastly in fellowship. Once again, in the Greek, this word translated fellowship is koinonia. This word, it's a common word all throughout the New Testament. But what's interesting is this is the very first time that you find the word in the Bible. It's all over the New Testament, but this is the first mention. It should also be pointed out that kononia is, is one of the most difficult words to translate from Greek to English. There's really not a good English representation of this word. And fellowship might be the worst. The word is so complex that you can translate it as community, joint participation, oneness, community, togetherness, and on and on it goes. Think of koinonia as life sharing, sharing life with another person. The word speaks to the reality that the Christian experience was designed by Jesus to be shared and lived with others. These people being saved, what they needed? Two things. They needed to be taught God's word and they needed other Christians to share life with. See, the early church found this to be essential for spiritual growth. So much so that they were continuously placing themselves under the encouraging influence of other like-minded believers. Now, in some ways, 
you could say that this church made it a priority to hang out with one another, which naturally will result in accountability and discipleship. And yet the word koinonia, it's much deeper than just that. It transcends spending time. It describes sharing life and a Christ-centered community connection with one another. It's not just having friends. It's having partners. People that you, you knew if you were to die, your family would be taken care of. Not by blood, but by something that runs deeper than blood. Spirit. It's those connections. Realize this Konania connection among believers is the second essential component for a healthy church. It directly follows the teaching of God's word. And think about it this way. If together we are all one body in Christ, but we're made up of separate individual parts, we have one of two options, right? Grow together or be a middle schooler. You know, face deformity. You know, middle schoolers are super awkward and have a hard time getting one foot in front of the other without falling down. You know why? Because there's parts of their body growing faster than the rest. It's why teenagers are dangerous. They're actual adult bodies with childlike brains. Literally. Childlike brains. Don't have the ability to judge risk and reward. We give them a car. That works. We have to grow together or we're deformed. You know, this loner mentality that permeates the church today. It, it, as a matter of fact, it's why a lot of people like to go to big churches. A big church allows you to be anonymous. Allows you, allows you to go to attend and leave and never really have to talk to anyone. And you know why we don't like talking to people? Because they're people. And they're messy. And I'm messy enough. Right? I mean, if, if we're being honest... Like, it's just easier. I'm a train wreck. Why do I need to partner with another train wreck? That seems like that compounds our problems. But it doesn't. It does something interesting. You see, it's harder to attend this church and fly under the radar. See, koinonia is not presented in Scripture as a suggestion. I hope you know that. It's the second thing in the list. It's not a suggestion. It's a requirement. It's an essential component if you want to be healthy. So how do we develop a koinonia connection? First, the Bible presents koinonia as a manifestation of the Holy Spirit, working organically through the lives of, of just the normal connections of people. Artificial koinonia, trying to, to create it on your own, it's impossible. It's an illusion. Illusions, Michael. But let me explain how organic koinonia develops. This is how it happens. Okay, follow me. You come to church. You look around. This is going to be difficult. But I'm here. I don't know anyone. But I need to say hello to someone. So you go up and you introduce yourself. Nothing happens. Just friendly chat, a little bit of banter. You get a cup of coffee. You come for a few weeks. At some point in the process, you, 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 you're starting to see the same people again. And you're starting to remember their names. You forgot the first three times, but, but you finally got it. It's stuck. And then you get daring. 
You're like, would you like to grab lunch afterwards? Would you like to go out to lunch? Or, or, or how about, you know, coming over to our house for dinner? Why don't we set up a play date with the kids? Hey, I, you know, I notice you're always watching a Falcons jersey. You want to come out? Come over to my house Monday night, football. We've watched some football. You want to you you hang? Where you get to that point, you come to church, you start to make a connection, and then you decide to move the connection outside of the four walls of this building into the, into the real world, into life. That's how you start to build koinonia. Now, if you're struggling to develop a meaningful connection, you're super introverted, I need to say this. You're never going to develop friendships if you're not willing to be friendly. I think Calvary 316 is one of the friendliest places around. Probably to a fault. Like, leave me alone. Like, I just want to come and sit down. You've got to talk to me. I think we're friendly. You're going to have a hard time coming and not having someone stick their hand in your face to say hello, say good morning. But if you just come late and then slip out early, and then you're like, those people are not friendly. Man, forget you. You never gave me a chance to even say hi. Like, don't blame other people. There, there comes a point you have to take some type of responsibility. Secondly, it's virtually impossible for you to see Kononia develop organically if you don't attend church regularly. Okay, don't, I'm going to do some math here, just a second, but I'm going to repeat this. It's impossible for you to see Konania develop organically if you aren't willing to attend church regularly. Tom Rainier, whose field focuses on statistical research related to church growth, he made a really interesting observation. Let me read you a quote. He said, the number one reason for the decline in church attendance is that members attend less frequently than they did a few years ago. If the frequency of attendance changes, then attendance will drop, will respond accordingly. For example, if 200 members attend every week, the average attendance is obviously 200. But if one half of those members miss one out of four weeks, the attendance drops 12.5% to only 175 people a Sunday. See, Rainier's study revealed that church attendance is in decline in America, not on account of a decrease in visitors but because members attend less frequently. Like he finishes up his example by saying this, while no members left this church and everyone was relatively active, attendance still declined because half the members changed their attendance behavior slightly. And we wonder why people struggle to plug into the church community. Here's the math. Consider if everyone that called Calvary 316 home came only once a month, okay? Let's imagine that. Everyone, once a month, aside from me. You know, you'd only stand a 6% chance to even see the same people every week. If everyone attended, let's say, only half the time, two out of four Sundays, you would then only stand a 25% chance to see the same people every week. If, let's say, we got crazy, and everyone attended three out of four Sundays. That's pretty dedicated. You'd still only stand a 56% chance to see the same people week to week. Here's my point. You're going to find it impossible 
to take advantage of the opportunities to develop genuine fellowship within a church community if you're not first willing to make it a priority to come to church on Sunday. With this in mind, as a deliberate model for Calvary 316, we believe one organized meeting a week is all people really need in order to make a real connection. You know, one that, that carries outside of the walls of the church. Tragically, when churches see a lack of community, this is what they do. They fill the calendar with all types of activities aimed at fostering community. You know what happens? The same people go to those things who already have community. Like it's, it's, it's redundant. See, the basic remedy to a community issue is nothing more than this. Encourage your members to just come every Sunday. If you want to maximize everything you need in this, this Christian life, teaching of God's word, you want to develop relationships. It's just simple. One and a half hours a week, that's it. Just come on Sunday. You come every Sunday. You'll be taught God's word, and I promise you, you'll have more friends than you want. Organic koinonia. That's what we desire. Now, some people have struggles making that friend, moving beyond, which is why everything else we do aside from Sunday morning is designed to help you make relationships. It's all relational. From Sunday potlucks to sisterhood events to our band of brothers to youth events, they all exist to create a more personal, intimate environment with the goal of helping you foster koinonia because you need it. But here's the kicker. We can't make friends for you. Like We can give you opportunities but until this is something you see that you need and are willing to, to, to take a step out to develop, it'll never happen. Thirdly, and I'm running out of time, we're told that they continued steadfastly in the breaking of bread. What does that mean? This phrase, the breaking of bread, it's in the emphatic tense, which, which means that Luke here, he's describing something that's deeper than just sharing a meal with one another, which by the way, I think to be a wonderful way to develop organic koinonia. Break bread with someone. Enjoy the time. And yet, what Luke is describing with this phrase, the breaking of bread, it would seem that the church here made it a priority when they gathered together corporately to remember what Jesus had done for them on the cross by partaking of the elements whenever they gathered. See, this is why at Calvary 3.16, aside from teaching the Bible and encouraging koinonia, it's important to us that we have the table available every Sunday morning. And here's why. Not only does it give us a chance to, to, to commune with Jesus, it gives us a chance to commune with one another. We're partaking of the same plate, the same bread, the same wine. And it's in that illustration, that picture that we're reminded that we all have one commonality that transcends all of our differences. Finally, we're told they continued steadfastly in prayers. The idea behind in prayers isn't that the believers spent time in prayer on their own, but that they were doing something together corporately. And I don't think it was praying, actually. And using this word prayers Luke is describing a moment 
when the church communicated as one something to God together. What he's describing from a historical angle might actually be more of the worship portion of our service. When the church, what, in one voice, happens to be singing, in one voice, we cry out together in unison something to God. One commentator observed in the Greek, the definite article occurs before the word prayer. The text actually says, to the prayers. Obviously, this is a reference to something formal, to worship in which people got together and praised God. Four things. Apostles' doctrine, fellowship, cell phones, just kidding. The Apostles' doctrine, fellowship, breaking of bread, prayer. In conclusion, make no bones about it. I want you to know this. It is the longing of my heart to see Calvary 316 grow. And I believe it's going to happen. I really do. I've seen it. I'm seeing it. But I do want you to know this, and I can speak for the elders. It's more important that we see Calvary 316 grow the right way. It's not growth. That's not the goal. It's growth the right way. See, we want to see the Lord add to our church. Daily, those who are being saved, those you go out and are sharing the gospel with, but we understand that in order for this to happen in a healthy way, it's something Jesus must accomplish. So instead of trying to make it happen, our focus is the why. It should happen. The church described in Acts 2 grew because they had created an environment that Jesus wanted to add to. This church didn't care about numbers. They were committed to continuing steadfastly in these four things, knowing that such a place Jesus would add those who were being saved. It's a matter of reality that since we teach God's word faithfully (laughs) and we don't avoid anything as the scriptures lead us to, no matter how controversial or unpopular or un-PC, the truth, the experienced junkie will not find Calvary 316 as exciting as a low-rise church. It's the truth that since we find it essential that people deal with their issues rather than run away from their problems, our church will not be as accepting as the brothel church. It's a fact that since we spend our time equipping believers, not everyone will find us as entertaining as the circus church. And if these realities hinder the speed in which we grow, so be it doesn't matter. (laughs) My job is to be found faithful. Well done, good and faithful servant. Got nothing to do with how many people go to my church. That might be how my grandfather evaluates things. It's not how my heavenly father does. It's our people growing, people being fed. Are these things part of our foundation? But that said, I do believe with all of my heart that Jesus will add to our church if We're found faithful to continue steadfastly in the teaching of God's word, open to the spirit developing organic koinonia, willing to gather to his table to worship God in spirit and truth. Never forget the how and the why. They're important if a church is to grow and remain healthy. The Lord added to the church. 
daily those who are being saved. So, Father, Lord, we just want to let that...